0: Welcome to The Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall.
1: During my PhD, me and my colleagues would joke like, no one will ever make a million dollars off of anything we discover, right? And that's because we just didn't believe that anyone would ever seriously value with dollars climate action and climate change. And we were completely wrong about it. And I feel similarly about biodiversity right now. It's just really hard for me to imagine people doing it, given, especially in like doing it for a long time. But I'm also appreciating like this is all changing much faster than I predicted, right? Like, and so I could be incredibly wrong there. What we have seen is like when we talk about what the value of these carbon credits are, the biodiversity does play into that price, that carbon price. And that's what we're seeing right now. All right, Colin, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have
0: you. Thanks, Nick. Excited to be here. So I've started doing something new, which is in lieu of the like, tell me your background story and everything you did before what you're doing right now. I like to get listeners excited by just diving right into the deep end. Why don't you give us the zero to 60
1: on Funga and the business that you're helping lead? Absolutely. I'm the founder and CEO of Funga, and at Funga, we reintroduce below ground fungal biodiversity to forests to accelerate forest regeneration and the rate at which they pull carbon dioxide out of the air. And we do that in a way that's pretty different than what's been done in the inoculant space for a long time. I think it's really useful here to draw an analogy to the human microbiome project. So we've that's come funny. to learn that like our bodies are microbial ecosystems. You know, We house an incredibly biodiverse community of organisms in our gut and throughout our body that have a profound impact on our health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, medical microbiologists figured this out by characterizing the microbiome of thousands of people using DNA sequencing and also recording their health. So are you sick? And if so, with what? What's your blood pressure, your digestive health, your mental health? If you put all that together, you can create essentially a description of what a healthy human microbiome looks like, a map. And you can then use that to say, okay, if I have identified somebody sick because of a loss of microbial biodiversity in your body, I can use that map to select a healthy microbiome and seed that into you. And that is the treatment for a variety of diseases. It's some of the best treatments for a lot of certain conditions and digestion and other stuff now. And those are on the market today. And so we asked the same question, but of a forest, right? And the forest microbiome really, really lives in the soil and fungi are a huge important part of that. And so Mm -hmm. we go to thousands of forests, we document forest health, or we work with people who have, and we sequence the soil to figure out which fungi live there. Got it. And from that, we create that analogous map. What's a healthy forest microbiome look like? Yeah. We can go to places where we know there's been significant degradation of the soil microbiome in a forest, and we introduce that at the moment of tree planting. And we're not introducing one or five or 10 species when we do that because we're using whole microbial community is we're introducing hundreds of species of fungi, thousands of species of bacteria when we do that. And our goal here is really to learn from nature through that mapping process, right? Identify how biodiversity is linked to forest health, and then use that biodiversity as biotechnology to mm. create outcomes in
0: the forests like carbon removal. I love that analogy to the human microbiome too. I think that helps make it pretty appreciable at the work that you all are doing. And there's a couple of things that before we dive deeper on the business and the work that y'all are doing that I think there's some like table setting that might be helpful for some of the folks listening in. When we talk about biodiversity, like as a concept, if folks are kind of newer to that, how do you, we've already started to kind of get into the implications of some of it, but how do you break that concept in general down to folks? Like when we're talking about the biodiversity of a forest, what does that encapsulate for you?
1: For me, biodiversity is the variety and complexity of life on this planet. Mm. and part of that is how many species are here so you might go to a forest and say there are 12 different tree species here and that's important we generally have this concept of like more is better and in many cases that actually is true but it also matters not just how many but are those the right ones for the geography you're in right like are right. that you can imagine a world where you had more species than a native habitat but you had the same species everywhere and so you create this huge homogenous landscape. And that's really what's going on in a lot of agriculture. And so it's about how that biodiversity turns over in space and how you preserve that variety. And that biodiversity is absolutely the plant species, but it's also the flora, but also the fauna, the animals, the fungi, the things that live in the soil and all the other microbiology as well.
0: That broadened perspective is important because I think what used to immediately come to mind for me when I thought about biodiversity, especially from like a clean energy and climate context is like you kind of jump straight to the animals and you're like, oh yeah, we want to make sure that we build transmission lines and wind t- turbines and things like that in a way that where they don't harm birds as kind of like the most front of mind example for some people. But there's really like so much more to the biodiversity question than just like the stuff that you're used to seeing and that's appreciable to the human eye.
1: Yeah. I mean, biodiversity is absolutely a multi- dimensional thing. And the animals are a big part of it. And that's awesome. And often, actually, if you're creating habitats that can support like large animals, you're probably protecting a lot of their stuff.
0: And I'm curious also to understand, were there specific things, specific signals that you saw from a tech perspective, whether, for instance, in the cost of DNA sequencing, that kind of provided the impetus for you to decide, like, yes, this is the right time to start this business? Or were you coming at it more from like, I know this is a problem that we need to solve. And it just so happens that there's like a confluence of other progress in tech that's going
1: to enable it. There has been a lot of technology that's just hitting right, right now. Yeah. I think we, large scale, like DNA sequencing describe environmental microbiology really started taking off in the mid 2000s, like 2000, like 15 years ago, really. Got it. But it was very expensive and you could maybe characterize a few dozen samples. and That would be a ton of money. Now we're at a point where that sequencing is cheap enough that we're characterizing thousands of forests, right? And that's both because the price came down, but also like as scientists, we got better at it. So for example, we really didn't know how sensitive or like to degradation these samples were. So like if I go take a soil sample, do I need to like put that on liquid nitrogen in the field or I'll lose all the DNA? Mm -hmm. And that's how people started. And then they're like, okay, maybe wait, I can wait till I get back to the lab. Within 24 hours and put it in an ultra cold, like minus 80 Celsius freezer. Got it. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. They're like, <laughs> actually, maybe the temperature could be minus 20. Actually, I think we could just air dry this stuff and put it on a <laughs> shelf. DNA is stable, and like that is actually what happened—the arc and where we are now. Got it. And so, when you remove that cold chain, like everything becomes a lot
0: easier. And you mentioned that you're already ambitiously going after doing this DNA sequencing work and understanding the biodiversity and kind of the. Characterizing the ecosystems of thousands of different forests. Let's talk a little bit about how you got to that point and how you're doing that work in 2023. Like, how do you achieve that scale beyond the fact that it's gotten tangibly cheaper?
1: Getting work done at really large scales requires collaborating with lots of people. And so it really turns into like what I call like an email ecology problem. (laughs) And that's what we do a lot of email ecology, right? It's about getting in touch with people who have access to huge geographically distributed sets of forests and have consulting foresters out there who can actually go out and take a sample and coordinate with you to get that mailed back to your lab. Right. So you can actually do the DNA sequencing work, but actually sourcing it from a big area is a big part of the trick. Yeah. So it sounds like there's kind of an element of
0: crowdsourcing here. I forget the name of like, there I think at some point there was like a pharmaceutical company. Is that something we can talk about more too is like traditionally a lot of like value from biodiversity has kind of been for pharmaceutical products. There's all kinds of chemotherapy drugs and other drugs that have come from like very specific organisms over the years. But there was a company at one point that was like literally just trying to get the layman to send them samples of stuff. And they're like, hey, if we find something interesting in the samples that you send us, we'll give you a cut.
1: But (laughs) oh, wow. there have been some like attempts at the crowdsourcing model in the past. So right now, our first market is actually a really big forestry market. So southern pine like is the biggest forestry market in the U.S. It's like, we think there's 50 million planted acres. So that's like half the footprint of corn in the U.S. Yeah. And it's one of the biggest forestry markets in the world. And so it runs from like Virginia, south to Florida and west to the eastern part of Texas is roughly where it is. Yeah, So it's a big area. And to pull that off, we build relationships with landowners and then we work with consulting forestry companies that are all over that footprint who have people in trucks who go out, know how to, go take a measurement of forest health and a soil sample. Yeah. And when you're
0: talking to these stakeholders, how do you pitch them on the potential value, like the upshot of them
1: collaborating with you on this? Foundational to our model is working with landowners to build carbon projects on their land. Yeah, So our pitch to them is, hi, we're Funga. We'd love to both sample your forest, but also build a project with you on your land. We Mm -hmm. want to show up. And instead of planting business as usual seedlings, let's plant seedlings that are enhanced with wild fungal microbiology that we have identified as growth promoting. Mm. And so you're going to get bigger trees. We're actually going to pay you to do that if we can agree to a carbon lease on your land that will then allow us to quantify how much extra carbon is removed because of that fungal biodiversity and sell that out to the voluntary carbon market. Understood. And yeah, it makes sense that as the VCM
0: has sort of, I wouldn't say it is mature, but it has matured over the past couple of years that this is like now a viable monetization lever. What are some of the types of questions that those uh, stakeholders then ask? Like, where are their main concerns? Are they concerned about the measurement of the carbon and like the difficulty of spinning up the carbon project? Or are there other things that they ask about that are front of mind for them? Curious what those conversations have looked like.
1: People are pretty open to trying new stuff, which has been nice. They appreciate Generally, like it makes sense that the fungal microbiome in these systems has been degraded. There could be benefit to it, provide a lot of studies and evidence to that effect from the research I've done my whole life. Where things can get challenging is the particulars of the least. So for example, in this forestry footprint, the rotation length is usually about 25 years. So the plant trees, 25 years later, they cut them down. Almost all of the acres are going to go through that rotation. It. However, a lot of this land actually gets bought and sold more than once during that rotation. Interesting. And yeah. that's how real estate investment trusts value, create business models, value land, because the land's getting more valuable as more timber accumulates on it. Understood. We need them to say, we're going to wait 25 years to cut down these trees. We put a little bit of constraint on the timber marketing to make sure those go into long lived wood products. So like they become boards that actually go into houses rather than because that's where a lot of the carbon additionality lives on rather yeah. than going to, paper mill becoming become paper a pulp miller. or something. Yeah. And saying it has to be 25 years and go through the normal rotation does put some constraint on the optionality of trading those baseball cards that are those like lands, because a lot of these firms, they actually buy and sell these lands. They never visit them. They hire these consulting foresters to mm. actually go and operate them. So they really are baseball cards and anything that might constrain their ability to flip those around. Yeah. Is potentially a problem. But there are a bunch of different players out there who are far less concerned about that, and they generally are people who hold land a lot longer. Yeah. So some of the big legacy timber companies that are now all real estate trusts hold land that long. Got it. And a lot of the land is owned by family landowners, so like individuals and their families and it's like legacy property. And there's a lot of that, and so they're far more comfortable as well. Got
0: it. So is it fair to say that in many of these cases, the main price signal or means to value, like economically value the forest, has been like the timber value, and not necessarily that much beyond that.
1: Pretty much, yeah. What people do is before they do a timber sale, they contract foresters to show up and do what they call a timber cruise, which is like a great name for anything. <laughs> but basically, what happens is foresters go out and on a grid, like measure how big the trees are, essentially, and that yeah. an estimate on how much timber is on the land, and that is a huge component of the land value. Yeah, and that's most of it. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that
0: if you're asking folks to like expand their traditional economic model from pretty singular variable to then include as a starting point, the additional va- uh, variable of the potential like carbon credit monetization value, and then theoretically down the road, all these other things that like you and I would probably like them to also place a value on like the biodiversity itself also has significant benefits beyond the carbon. But yeah, that's a difficult shift to make over time. It's kind of like turning around an oil tanker.
1: Yeah. And I think it'll get there. It's just, you know, in theory, right, having a payment associated with a carbon lease should like have positive value as well as the constraint on the optionality. But it's just really new right now. Yeah. Like Timberland appraisal. Yeah. And they don't know how to price that. And so that is an obstacle. But, you know, I think we're just going to have to find our early adopters and there's a lot of them out there. Let's talk about
0: some of them. I'd love to, you know, hear some of the examples of the folks, if you're able to share some examples of the folks that you're starting to do this development work with in 2023.
1: Yeah. So we've done a lot with a real estate investment trust called Conservation Forestry. Uh, and so they got a history of wanting, you know, being comfortable working with land that's put in conservation easement or other structures. Mm. And we're, unfortunately, I can't say their names yet, oh, that's but, quite all um, right. some like top, five timber companies out there who have, you know, been in operation, some of them for over a hundred years. And so they own a lot of land and all of them have carbon markets on their mind. Sure. They might not be engaging with them yet, but like they're certainly watching and they're developing pilot programs to start trying things. And so we engage with those. And then like we said, like some big family landowners.
0: Do you find that they're also talking to other companies to Like, does it feel like you're competing with other potential carbon project developers or do you find that you're often like one of the first companies in the door and you're offering something sufficiently unique to kind of stand out from the rest of the reforestation offerings?
1: There's definitely other carbon project developers in the mix. Luckily, like, again, this footprint is so huge. It hasn't felt like there's not enough anchors for everybody. Yeah, that really has been a problem. But yeah, people are doing other stuff for sure. And a lot of this stuff, you know, has the potential to stack on top of each other. So like. Just because someone's there doesn't
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah, that was kind of where I was leading the question.
1: Yeah, it doesn't mean another technology could be there, right? Like we could apply enhanced rock weathering and do fungal biodiversity restoration, for example.
0: Or you know, maybe conceivably you could partner with someone that knows how to like really do reforestation in like a deforested area, well, and then like you're doing the fungal biodiversity component. They're helping grow the trees, do the actual seed planting and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. And that's really important. And I wanted to touch on that, right? Like right now we work in forestry, like for a very specific reason, right? Like I've worked in my academic program because I spent the first 17 years just as a scientist working with reforestation projects in different parts of the world. And it's really hard to build a reliable tree nursery and get reliable planting crews. And yeah. like all of that set up from scratch is monstrously difficult. And so we chose to come to the southern forestry because those problems are solved, right? Like we work with a tree nursery that grows 100 million seedlings a year and like over a million acres are planted every year by existing forestry crews. So like all those hard problems are solved and we get to focus on the microbiology. And if we could show we can do it here, you can jump into like reforestation or restoration projects as well. And speaking to the difficulty, I'm also curious to
0: ask on the measurement front, what's sort of the current version of your plan as you start to develop these carbon projects to rigorously measure and
1: verify and kind of report out on the carbon value of the work that you've done? Myself and several other members of of my team are forest carbon cycle scientists. That's our background. And when we approached this problem, we asked ourselves, how do you build the most rigorous forest carbon project we can think of? And then let's work backwards from there to think about how that fits in with existing registries and protocols. But really what that was is, you know, we create essentially a fungal-enhanced seed length that makes trees grow bigger. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that's really straightforward. So, you know, if we're planting, and how we quantify that, we might be doing a project over 100 acres, and we're going to hold back like 2% of that acreage and install quarter acre mm-hmm. controls throughout that landscape. Understood, yeah. And those are planted with trees from the same tree nursery, with the same genetics on the same exact day. We just don't add fungi to them. And that builds a straight-up A-B contrast into the project, right? Like The baseline is part of the project. And so that allows us to very compellingly show, compared to business as usual, how much extra wood has accumulated above ground. Right. And we measuring trees above ground is really straightforward, right? It's yeah. literally been done for over a century. You wrap a tape around the tree to measure the diameter. Yeah. And those equations are very good. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward. I've talked to a lot of, Companies,
0: for instance, as an example on ocean based carbon removal, where it feels like a lot of the measurement and reporting down the line is ultimately extremely model driven, which is not to say that that's like inherently an issue. Like that could over time prove out to be pretty rigorous, but I think it's a harder sell versus, as you said, like when you can actually exhibit that like we have an observable baseline that someone could actually go look at physically with their eyes as far as like engaging stakeholders and building the partnerships to do it. That strikes me as particularly compelling.
1: Yeah, we love it. And not to trash at all any model-based approaches, but yeah, what we love about that is it makes every project an experiment too, right? Which creates like the science discovery feedback loop to how we scale, right? Like as we scale, we get smarter and better at this. And that goes in, you know, we're making predictions from our own models about how this is going to work at every site. Right. And then we actually get to out a sample. Before it happens, we make a prediction and then we observe what happened and then that feeds back into the models.
0: That's a great perspective. And it leads me into kind of the next area of conversation that I'm keenly interested into is like, if it feels like you all are building what's probably one of the more robust data sets of fungal biodiversity, I don't know, in the US, maybe worldwide eventually. How do you think about both from a business perspective, but also potentially like beyond your business, like what the value of that will be over the long haul? Because especially in this moment where everyone's going gaga for everything that has AI in the name, it feels like there'll be some potentially significant. Like anytime you're actually opening up a fundamentally new data set, like that actually seems like to me, one of the most interesting feeders for to then use like all the advancements that we're getting in computation, but I shouldn't put the cart before the horse. I'll let you answer that.
1: We don't have the largest fungal biodiversity data set. So that's collected by collaborators of mine, actually at Global Fungi, which is based in Prague. And that's used a lot by a nonprofit I co-founded called spun the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. We basically assembled like over 30,000 DNA-based profiles of fungal biodiversity around the world. And we're creating the first global maps of biodiversity of those organisms that have ever really been made using machine learning and AI. Mm. What Funga collects that's pretty different from that is we're doing the same sort of fungal biodiversity observations, but it's that paired health observation, right? Like that makes it really different and allows us to define what a healthy forest microbiome looks like that is linked to outcomes that we care about. So that could be productivity and wood, that could be survival under drought or resistance to pathogen. Without that paired observation, you can't build that. And so Mm -hmm. as far as I know, we've built the largest paired data set so far and it's getting bigger.
0: And I like how you already spoke to the multidimensionality of it of like, obviously we're starting with a pretty keen focus on is more wood growing, but there are endless other potential applications of you know drought resistance, resilience, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, like we know we're almost certainly building soil carbon through this process as well, but because of the challenges of measuring soil carbon, we're like, this is not where we're starting. I'm curious also, what's your perspective on, like how long do you think, like it kind of seems like it's gonna be
0: a stepwise process as you just indicated, like maybe you start with the additional carbon sequestration and wood, Someday, ideally, you're also able to prove out that there's additional carbon sequestration in soil. How long do you think it will take before we start to see more robust markets for some of the other services that you're indubitably providing here? Like, I think earlier this year, a consortium of some Swedish banks bought some of the first like biodiversity credits associated with some like reforestation projects out in Sweden. Like, do you think that? market will also kind of follow with like a three to five year lag what's been happening in carbon? Or do you think it's gonna take other regulatory frameworks for folks to really start like assigning economic value to biodiversity? I really don't know. (laughs)
1: Uh, Neither do I. I, Because I used to joke during my PhD, me and my colleagues would joke like, no one will ever make a million dollars off of anything we discover, right? And that's because we just didn't believe that anyone would ever seriously value with dollars climate action and climate change. And we were completely wrong about that. Hmm. And I feel similarly about biodiversity right now. It's just really hard for me to imagine people doing it, given especially in like doing it for a long time. Right. But I'm also appreciating like this is all changing much faster than I predicted. Right. Like and so I could be incredibly wrong there. What we have seen is like when we talk about what the value of these carbon credits are, The biodiversity does play into that Mm -hmm. price, that carbon price. And that's what we're seeing right now.
0: Oh, interesting. So like, do you think there's a, are you starting to see a premium for the carbon services that you're delivering based on stakeholders assumptions or like knowledge that there is also a biodiversity benefit to it, even if that's difficult to quantify?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people care about all the normal things, right? Like, is it obviously additional? Would this have happened without the project? How long does that carbon stay removed? But like there's also this huge component of like co-benefits, which is a broad thing, but biodiversity is a big one.
0: Thinking about like carrots and sticks too, I think we are starting to see some solid regulatory push, at least in the EU and the UK, around mandating or at least like trying to create structures to promote biodiversity, like conservation and restoration. I think there's an interesting law in the UK, for instance around infrastructure deployment where I don't know the exact specifics around it, but specifically it was something to the effect of like for specific types of new major infrastructure, they actually also want the projects to prove that they're promoting like a 10% biodiversity net gain as opposed to like disrupting biodiversity. So in and of itself, like that'll probably provide opportunities for companies potentially like yourself or others to, I mean, there's at least going to be a market for like measuring and proving to a certain extent that that's happening, even if it isn't like there's a market for credit.
1: Yeah. And I think it's getting there. And I think one of the biggest challenges is like agreeing on the metrics themselves, like, right. What does a 10% net gain in biodiversity mean? Pretty difficult. 10% more species or is it okay if there's less species, but less of them are invasive. And so, and more of them are the ones that are actually native to that place, right? Like how do you bring in all that context that like, yeah. We've been studying for a long time and it's just not, carbon in some ways is a lot closer to fungible because you can weigh it, right? right. It's math. And biodiversity is much less so because it's like the unique combination. That said, people are, there are creative ways to do this. And colleagues of mine at the Crowther Lab at ETH Zurich, where I used to lead a team and I'm still affiliated, are working on developing what they call the seed index, which is sort of like a biodiversity and biocomplexity index that's yeah. multidimensional and What it eventually gets you to, even though it's considering all these very complicated things, is like, here's what it is in its natural state. Here's what it is in its degraded state, sort of like a space. And like, you can then quantify how much closer you got and get to things like, here's a 10% lift. Like, that's a number you can actually eventually get out of that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense that a lot of the foundational work around that will be agreeing on the right metrics and then figuring out how to actually, like, reliably measure those consistently across different ecosystems and all that type of stuff
1: just like in carbon right like so much of this comes down to the baseline right like how much what the same is true of biodiversity like what is intact biodiversity for this place and like when you get to somewhere like the uk that becomes particularly challenging because scientists can't agree on like what they call the wildwood right like pre-major conversion of that landscape to an agricultural one what was there what is intact biodiversity and so that getting that baseline right is challenging. And you need frameworks that allow that baseline to shift as we learn more. And that becomes part of the hard problem. The UK is such an interesting
0: area for it because that's sort of like the epicenter of where the industrial revolution started. Like we've already been at work inadvertently disrupting ecosystems for 200 plus years now, as opposed to other parts of the world where unfortunately that's kind of starting to happen now. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to continue to see what happens in that market. This conversation also led me to another question that I always like to ask, which is like for you and Funga, like how do you all measure success? And maybe that changes over like the near term versus the long term. But like, what are some of the main KPIs that you'd be excited to be like if we do this by 2025, that would be a huge win?
1: For us, it's like how much land, how many acres or hectares are we operating on and actually having an impact? And then what's the size of that impact, both for biodiversity and for carbon? And so for us it's like we go and we continue to monitor our sites after we put down a treatment and reintroduce fungi and we say right okay, okay we have a reference case and we're always expanding it like tracking down ancient loblolly pine forests because it's a native <laughs> tree to that part of the world these are production timber forests it's an agricultural environment but our goal is to ask how can this agricultural environment act as a better reservoir of the biodiversity that remains on this planet how can we reintroduce that and when we Think about success for like how much have we moved the needle there for fungal biodiversity, right? Like to what extent have we moved the needle from its degraded state back to its intact state? And we can quantify that. And then the second thing we care about, of course, is how much extra carbon was removed as a result of that.
0: And as you are doing this work and starting to actually develop carbon projects, we've probably already hit on a few of them. I think stakeholder engagement and corralling all the different folks that need to be on board for this type of work feels like one of the more challenging and you know also rewarding aspects of the business but what else comes to mind when i ask like what the key kind of challenges that you're hitting up against are now and i'm also curious whether there's areas on the tech side where you're like oh yeah this is something that like if this if there were continued innovation on this front for the next few years that would also provide a significant lift
1: so on like the business building side it's really about you know we're creating reinforced like forestry projects and in tree projects right and Trees grow slowly before they grow quickly. A lot of the carbon impact we're gonna have is gonna happen and be realized over the next five to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And that means we need people who wanna go early. yeah, And like, knit to pre-buying that in some capacity or once it's, you know, like, I'm gonna buy this at this price, once it's delivered, once it's captured, Right. we need people who wanna go early. And so there's luckily some of those out there, but there can always be more. And like, that's really what enables this to attract you know, the fundraising environment, it needs to scale. Makes sense. So business side thing that needs to exist. Technology side, it's pretty straightforward to measure a big tree, like mm-hmm. a tree that's like 15 years old, has like a trunk, and you can easily measure what they call a diameter, at breast height with like a tape. You can also take like a LiDAR phone up to it right. and like get it, zap it. Awesome. What's more challenging to measure is baby trees. Mm-hmm. In the first one, two, three years of growth but most reforestation projects are really judged based on the success in those early years. And we need to be able to measure those more cri- quickly. Because like right now, if you're an ecologist, what you do is you get a caliper and you get root collar diameter. So how big is that stem where it meets the soil and how tall is it? And you can do this instead with like a LIDAR drone or even other types of sensing that you put on a drone. And yeah. you, I've seen these pictures, like you'll have like a RGB photo where you're like, oh wow, there's all the little trees compared to the background and their pixels are now different colors. If I knew the pixel number on from that image and I also had those ground-based ba- measurements, I could build a model that then allows the drone to measure all the trees. Amazing. Yeah. And while it can generate that picture, I haven't seen someone actually put those numbers in a spreadsheet so they could be (laughs) cross-matched to those basic, super basic measurements. Right. And without that, you can't build the model that's really rigorous. And maybe somebody already has solved this problem and can do it. And if they can, please call me because we want to figure that out.
0: Yeah, not to like make it even more complicated, but I think two guests prior to you on the podcast was fellow Dan Katz, who's the CEO of Orbital Sidekick, and they're launching hyperspectral satellites. And- he was discussing how there's also like implications around, you know, they want to be able to use that to also measure biomass and stuff like that. So the tech stack for all this type of stuff is definitely developing to your point. It'll be interesting. The perhaps the most interesting upshot of that is like, what is combining all of that different data into like the most robust model look like from on the ground to space based like satellite observation data?
1: Yeah. And like, we're going to have to come at it multiple directions. There'll always be a role of ground-based observations to calibrate those models, but it's getting better all the time. And like, as you said, suggested, the AI capabilities that are coming through Mm. have made it easier than ever to relate very complex data sets to outcomes you care about. Mm. And so for us, that's DNA sequencing information, right? Like I get information about from our footprint, there's thousands of fungal species in that data set. And existing in different places and like translating that into predicting biomass ai is a big part of that trick
0: yeah and this probably feeds into some of the academic work that you've done in the past or at least it's colored to perspective but i'd be curious as you've begun building these data sets like what beyond that relational work of all the different data and how it feeds into like the core crux of your business and carbon value like have there been other things that were just like particularly illuminating or, or fun to see that you were just like, whoa, this is like species that like no one else has ever sequenced before.
1: So it's funny because in microbi, we're always finding species that no one's found yeah. before because there's <laughs> just so many that are undescribed. So you're like, oh no, that's like Rusilla species complex 99. And there's a lot of that. So we use the model to make predictions. So like, okay, we think these forests harbor particularly like great intact biodiverse microbiology. And then we go to them. Mm. And some of these places we go to, like, you're like, oh, yeah, of course it was this place. Um, <laughs> one of them, I remember it was like ringed by a swamp. So it was particularly difficult to access. And for that reason, it doesn't seem like it's been managed very intensively like yeah. a lot of other plantations. And it probably hasn't been managed intensively like going back a very long time. Yeah. And so perhaps it's unsurprising that that forest is harboring like more biodiverse communities of fungi in different dimensions that are linked that have been lost in other places and like yeah. my team's like sending me photos of like digging through the soil and they're just like pulling out we call them like soil pads it's just like a clod of soil and it's like you could just see hyphae like the fungal biomass coursing through it and you're like it's just cool and the machine learning like sometimes it's difficult to believe and then you're mm-hmm. like all right let's go to the places that it <laughs> says are good and you're like oh wow
0: yep there's some really cool stuff happening here subsurface that uh yeah no one else has ever probably taken a look at
1: Yeah. And so it's always just like, it really feels incredible when like all of that math actually translates to something you can see. And using that as kind of
0: like a launching point to zoom out, I think if you look at like the headline numbers around biodiversity loss, it can be pretty stark and it can be pretty easy to get, I don't know, almost like doomer-ish about the whole enterprise. But I'd be curious, like whether it's other companies or other developments pertaining to our appreciation and like folks increasing interest in promoting biodiversity, like what are you seeing out in the market that beyond your work at Funga has you excited too, because it's such a big topic in biodiversity that I'm sure you as a a founder and an academic in the past, you're probably close to some stuff that I'm not even privy to.
1: There's some really cool efforts on the sort of nonprofit side of this world. So I mentioned already, I'm a co-founder of SPUN, the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, and our job is to document the Earth's like invisible fungal biology and biodiversity so we can actually build meaningful baselines for tracking biodiversity changes, both losses and gains, make the first conservation easements that have ever been made, not for based on which plants and animals live here, but actually what is living underground in the soil. Right, That's exciting. And people, it's just been amazing to see how much that resonates with people, because like the definition of a microbial organism is you can't see it. And so like the fact that people are really on board to appreciate things that are fundamentally invisible is just really inspiring to me. It's the change that needs to happen in many ways i mean we couldn't see greenhouse gas emissions
0: 100 years ago and so no one paid attention to it now hopefully like the same level of concern and in innovation and development will happen across a lot of other areas where it's like we just haven't been able to see this stuff and as a result haven't really thought about putting a value on it
1: and fascination like a, it's like most fundamental level it's like an emotional thing if you're mm. fascinated by something And like, I think people, astrobiologists have, not biologists, just astronomers, have done a great job of this. People are fascinated by black holes. You cannot see a black hole. And that's awesome. And there's just as much complexity and depth in the biodiversity that inhabits this planet. Mm. And I don't know if we've made as many strides in that, you know, just deep fascination with the public as people studying deep space have. And not to dunk on deep space, deep space is awesome but so is biodiversity. I'm like, we need to find that emotion in people around it. It's because
0: storytelling too, like there's financial capital, there's human capital, but then folks' attention is also such a valuable, I don't want to call it a commodity, but like that's its own form of capital. And yeah, getting folks really excited about this stuff, whether it's because they are excited about the carbon value of it for specific stakeholders or for other folks, if they're just like excited about really diverse, rich ecosystems or what have you. Yeah, that's a big component of the push that I definitely recognize as valuable
1: as well. You know, it takes people like y'all, Nick, to like tell these stories and get them out there because they don't tell themselves. Right. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of good, I think just like,
0: you know, the research around the extent to which like trees and forest ecosystems like communicate through my and networks and stuff like that. I feel like that's probably done a lot for the public sentiment around it of being like, oh, wow, we like had no idea to like what extent like trees like alert one another to things and share resources and stuff like that. So, yeah, it definitely feels like there's been a sea change in terms of, you know, people's just like interest and appreciation for natural ecosystems over the last 5 years, but maybe that's just our echo chamber to a certain extent too. I don't know. You go echo chamber.
1: <laughs> I would say like soil health really resonates with a lot of people across the spectrum and like, you know, I've done a lot of work during my PhD in Central Texas like we use it The space from Austin to like Del Rio, which is almost by Big Ben, six hours of driving as a rainfall gradient. Mm. And we would study microbes on people's ranches and trying to understand how they might or might not be adapted to drought. And you go out there and part of that is like you just meet these people who own these ranches and you drive around on their ATV with them and they show you their ranch and where they hunt and the places they've been observing for 20 years. And they Mm. see biodiversity change on their land. And they are deeply like concerned about it and also emotionally connected to it, right? And these are not always people who are in my normal echo chamber. I think people across political spectrums and age and all sorts of different dimensions like deeply care about biodiversity and they use different ways to describe it and explain that, but it's really a point of common ground, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, that's an interesting component of the
0: conversation too, is like the way that this can be a pretty bipartisan push. I mean, even if it's just something as simple as like topsoil on farms, like, yeah, as you said, those aren't necessarily, like the folks that care deeply about that aren't necessarily the ones that know about or are the most excited about the IRA, for instance, but, you know, they have a vested interest in, and a deep understanding of it. So building those coalitions.
1: Well, yeah, like the point of climate action that has the most bipartisan support is like forests, yeah, trees. Like people are like, okay, I can get down on that, you know, regardless of where I am on a political spectrum feels like a good time to also extend, you know, the
0: opportunity for calls to action. You already kind of hinted at one earlier around if there's folks that are doing interesting work around building data sets that kind of harmonize the -the on-the-ground tree measurements with things like data from germs and stuff like that. That's certainly an opportunity area, but who else are you interested in hearing from at Fungo? Like what types of folks are you looking to hire or, you know, where would you point people who are interested in exploring more of the work that you're doing?
1: Totally, thank you. If you want to follow what we do, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Find us and follow us there. We post a lot of content there. If you're a carbon buyer and you want part of your net zero portfolio to support fungal biodiversity restoration as a climate solution, call us, email us. We want to work with you. We want to help you deliver that. And then finally, a weird ask, you know, we really are interested in finding the oldest pine trees out there. (laughs) I love that. Uh, So basically, you know, When Europeans settled North America, they clear cut everything east of the Mississippi. Yeah, And these pine trees we work with grow on a 25-year rotation, but they can easily get over 200 years old. And it's extremely difficult to find them. And Mm. so if you know where old growth, you know, (laughs) southern pine forests are, call us. We want to go. We want to sample them, describe the biodiversity, share that information with the world. Like, that's somehow in your wheelhouse reach That's a fun project. If I had a month off, I'd consider
0: just like going out and going like super old pine tree hunting and not with the intention of cutting them down, obviously, but just to find them. I love that.
1: Yeah, they're out there. They're on like islands and rivers and stuff like
0: that. Mm. Anything that we haven't hit on that you feel like is super critical, I feel like covered a lot of good ground, but.
1: I think the thing we always want to make sure we hit on is like, we're working in forestry, but part of the reason like we've chosen where we work is because this huge forestry market, like southern pine and loblolly pine specifically, is a native tree to this part of the world. There's a ton of fungal biodiversity associated with that tree that has been lost due to intensive forest management. And so this is part of how we chose where we work in forestry, because we think we can actually have a, do a lot of ecological good in this area. Right. And it's uniquely suited to that. And then also, sometimes people get hung up on, this is forestry. How are you going to have a climate impact if you cut these trees down? Sure. And it's really important to emphasize that like it is forestry and this is an agricultural market that's huge in the world. It's really important for building materials, especially as we try and move away from things like concrete and steel, which right. are associated with a lot of emissions and people are making innovations and in mass timber. So you can build a skyscraper out of wood, which is, can be a carbon negative material. And that's where a lot of that carbon lives on in those materials. And so even though the forest is being cut down, right, like it lives this second life outside of the forest. And that's really important to understand the climate impact of what we're doing in that forestry market. And if you're also like
0: rebuilding a forest fungal ecosystem and then sourcing wood products from it, ideally, that's also just like displacing like deforestation elsewhere. And so there's a significant benefit to that as well.
1: Yeah. And like we're developing, we have this whole narrative now around regenerative agriculture, right? Like we're trying to build more biodiversity into our managed food landscapes. So we can also grow more nutritious food, support things like pollinator habitat and get those systems to act as better carbon sinks. And like, what is regenerative forestry? Right. And we think a big part of that is building biodiversity back into it below ground, as well as a bunch of other things. And I think that's the lens we try and bring to this work. Love that vision.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good, hopeful note to end on. I won't make you, sometimes I try to like close on the like optimist versus pessimist broad strokes question as it pertains to uh to climate change. But I see you as someone that is at least finding optimism and going out and doing the work, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our lead data scientist, and her take is always like, do anything. Yeah. <laughs> And this feels like part of anything. And so that's really what it is for us. It's like, you know, there are things we have to do to like take climate action. Yeah, And I see people doing them more and more every day. And I think that's what makes me cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah, the energy transition, decarbonization, and then also thinking about like restoration and biodiversity, all such grand challenges. But to your point, if everyone worldwide took on, you know, one component of the challenge, according to like their unique skill set. Probably make a lot of headway in the next 50 years. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right, Colin, thanks so much for joining. It's been a pleasure and uh, stoked to uh, chat again in a year and come out and see some of those carbon projects as they come to life. I can't wait to show you those little baby trees thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.